Thank you guys so much for leading us in worship. Uh, so we are in, I don't even know, week, this is week 12 of our series we're doing um, called Status, and this is a relationship series, and we are, um, it's actually gone by fast for me. It may have gone by slow for you, but it's gone by very fast for me, and uh, so we're almost to the end of it, um, and we've been, ha- we've been providing a way if you guys can ask questions, and a few of you guys have done that, not many, but a couple, a few. And uh, if you would like to ask any questions from today, even or even next week, uh, you can fill out a card at the back and drop it in the basket back there. And um, I think we're actually doing okay on the questions. So if um, I'm answering a few of the questions today that you guys have already asked, and then uh, my wife will be speaking next week, and you don't want to miss that talk. She's been working tirelessly on this talk for that she's going to do next week. I'll, I'll, I'll explain what's going to be later on this, in the talk here, but. Um, I mean, she started prepping for this, like, I think three months ago. And anyway, she's just very diligent, and I appreciate that about her. And uh, so she'll um, do some questions as well next week, next couple of weeks. And uh, if you guys have questions, please fill out a card, put it in the basket in the back. Now, last week was part one on the gospel and same-sex attraction. And this week is part two. And today we're going to answer many frequently asked questions that people might have. And again, some of these questions are the ones y'all already asked. Some are questions that I've just kind of thought up that you might have that you didn't know you had yet. And so we're going to answer those questions today. And uh, we're going to break today into three parts. It's biblical questions, personal questions, and cultural questions. That'll be our outline today. So first is biblical questions. And uh, so there are some people that ask this question. So what about those who say the Old Testament passages don't apply anymore. There are some that will say that, and they will look at, at certain, uh, you know, passages that they see as like, well, that's an old part of the Bible. We don't really follow those laws anymore, so what's the point? Uh, so if you turn on the news or hear people on, like on the street interviews, people try to explain away those passages in the Old Testament by saying things like, well, the passages on same-sex um, ideas in the Old Testament don't really apply because it's right there next to the other weird Old Testament laws, which talk about what kind of clothing you can and can't wear, or laws that no one follows like no pork and no bacon, right? Um, Because the Jewish people were called by God to follow certain customs, and it wasn't that those things were necessarily sinful in and of themselves, but it was God's way of trying to keep the nation distinct from other nations. That's why God set up some laws for Israel And so what some will say is, well, those laws about sexuality are right there with the other laws that we don't follow anymore, so why should we follow the ones that are in relation to uh, same-sex ideas? They'll say those kinds of things. And here's what I would say to that. This is just intellectual laziness to conclude that, and here's why. Because Israel had three types of laws. They had ceremonial, which was dealt with the temple and the sacrificial system, That was their ceremonial law system. They also had civil laws. This was how they were to treat their fellow man, but also how they were to treat other nations. And this is God's civil law for them and how they were to relate to each other in their nation. Then there's moral law, which is a separate category. So ceremonial law and civil law no longer apply to us specifically because... um, uh, obviously, Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the ceremonial laws and all that it pointed to in the sacrificial system. The civil laws was because they lived under a theocracy where God was basically in charge of them, not just spiritually, but also politically. 
And so civil laws kind of pointed to that. And so because we don't have a theocracy, we're not living under a theocracy, we don't read the Old Testament and say, well, Israel did this, therefore we should do this in America today, right? That's different now because we're in a different time. However, the thing that never changes in Scripture is moral law. It's why murder is still wrong, okay? Um, it's interesting. People that say this, that they, when they appeal to the moral law argument, or they say that they, they, ca- they categorize moral law with everything else, they don't try to justify things like murder or stealing, right? They don't do that. They just do that with this one little topic of, of, of these same-sex uh, desires and whatnot. So um, I think that's some flawed reasoning there. And uh, Tim Keller, in one of his books, he writes this. The coming of Christ changed how we worship, but not how we live. The moral law outlines God's own character, his integrity, his love, his faithfulness. And so all the Old Testament says about loving our neighbor, caring for the poor, generosity with our possessions, social relationships, and commitment to our family is still in force. The New Testament continues to forbid killing or committing adultery, and all the sex ethic of the Old Testament is restated throughout the New Testament. If the New Testament has reaffirmed a commandment, then it is still in force for us today. Anything that was seen as sinful sexually in the Old Testament is still seen as sinful in the New Testament, and that never seems to change as far as Scripture goes. Another question that, this is a question that someone really wrote down last week. How do you find trustworthy sources on controversial topics like same-sex attraction? So example, Sam Albury versus Jen Hatmaker. If you don't know who these people are, Sam Albury, we've quoted Sam Albury quite a bit in this series, and he is someone who is same-sex attracted, but living in obedience and not acting out on it, and he's a guy that I recommend to read, like, all of what he writes. He is solid and biblical. Then there's Jen Hatmaker, who is a, the wife of a pastor in Austin, and they're a couple leading a church. I forget the name of the church. They were leading a church in Austin, and as far as everyone could tell, they were believing and saying biblical things, but then a few years ago, they begin to take a turn and kind of go off in a different direction. And now she is someone who is outspoken. She claims she is a Christian, but she is someone who's outspoken on podcasts and also in, in blogging as well. Um, and saying that she is totally affirming um, in same-sex relationships and saying that it's totally okay and this is God honoring and this is what God would want. And this is someone who is a, claims to be a Christian who is saying this to people um, uh, in her forms of media that she decides to uh, partake in. So that's who that person is. Um, And I think this person asking the question is asking how we can know to trust what someone like Sam is saying versus what someone like Jen is saying. And here's what I would say to that, that question. I would say, read or listen to their views and pay attention to how they build their arguments. Pay attention to who or what their authority is. So whenever I read Sam Albury, I see that Scripture seems to be his authority. When I hear Jen Hatmaker talk, culture seems to be her authority. So the main difference in their arguments usually goes something like this. Those like Jen Hatmaker, those who believe that living out same-sex desire is okay, they usually believe that when the Bible speaks of homosexuality, that it's not talking about like same-sex committed relationships like in a marriage. This is what they will say. They will say that 
those kinds of relationships didn't exist back then. And so the Bible, when it speaks out about, you know, anything that's, that's related to homosexuality, they will say, well, it's not talking about like a, a same-sex committed marriage like we might have today. And so it can't be forbidding that. And I think, once again, there's some flawed reasoning going on there because they, this person will also look at Genesis chapter 19 with the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah where God destroyed those cities, and they will see what took place in the, the city of Sodom as a prohibition against sexual assault, not just same-sex actions, because what took place in Genesis 19 was, was a really horrific scene, if you remember that, that story. Um, they will also see Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 as just prohibitions against same-sex activity only if it's tied to pagan idolatry. They will look at Leviticus 18 and 20 and say, well, this is really in reference to what people would do and how they would act out worship of idols. And so it's just forbidding this kind of behavior in the context of idolatry. That's how they will make the argument. And the problem with that view, though, is that in those two chapters, Leviticus 18 and also chapter 20, it also forbids incest, adultery, and bestiality. And I think no one's arguing that those things are okay today, I don't think. And we would say those things are all wrong just by themselves. And so I don't think it's right for us to take this one thing and separate it out and say, well, this one thing is now okay because of, we have this new understanding of what it actually meant in that day. The reason why I use Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 last week is because even the Bible scholars who try to explain away the Old Testament passages know that they, they can't really do that with the New Testament passages. So it's why I used Romans 1 last week and also 1 Corinthians 6. It seems like that people like Jen believe that we should let culture influence how we interpret the Bible, but people like Sam believe we should let the Bible speak to our culture. And so that's why I look at, at what Sam is saying as correct versus what someone like uh, Jen Hatmaker is saying. Here's a couple of books if you want to read up on this a little bit more. Um, I've used these two books mainly for our, um, these two talks. One is by a guy named Kevin DeYoung, and one is the book by, uh, these are really pretty short books and pretty easy to read if you want to read more about these and just have a good resource to think through it more clearly. The next question is this, Jesus never mentions homosexuality, so how can it be wrong? Many will say that. Now, it is true that he never says the word directly, but over in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23, he states a whole list of things that he says flows from our hearts. He states a whole list of sins that he says, these, these, these things flow out of someone's heart. And in that list, he says the word sexual immorality, which you've heard before in the series, and it's the Greek word pornea, where we get the word pornography. And this includes all forms of sexual immorality. So when Jesus says that word, it's the same word you hear in Paul's writing as well. It's like a junk drawer term that you could say anything that's like, you know, like not inside of a marriage, not, in, not sex inside marriage, um, would be categorized as sexual immorality. And the audience, of course, would know that that would include any kind of same-sex activity. They would just know that to be true. I'll borrow an analogy from Sam Albury. In one of his books, he says, Imagine if on a Sunday I said to you guys 
to express my thanks for everyone being in here today. At the end of the service, I will have an envelope for each one of you with $1,000 in it, okay? You can receive it at the back. I mean, it's almost Christmas. This would be a good gift, right? Just for being here today on a holiday weekend, Thanksgiving, you're special. You're the few, the proud. I'm going to choose you guys to give this money to. And you guys can pick it up in the back as you exit. Now, if you're in here when I make that promise, you would know that you're included in that promise. I don't have to mention each person's name specifically, right? So when Jesus mentions this list of sins over in Mark chapter 7, and he says sexual immorality, that includes sexual sin of all kinds. Those listening would know that it includes same-sex acts. He doesn't have to say it specifically for them to understand that. So those are our, I guess, some of the main biblical questions I want to cover with you. And then secondly, we have personal questions. We touched on this a little bit last week. But what should I do if I experience same-sex attraction? And I'm taking this, uh, these few points here straight from Sam Albury's book. The first uh, point that he says is to, um, these are very simple, is to pray and talk to God about confusion we're feeling, about our temptations, and about our sins. Now, when I say sins, I mean like if you've acted on this in some way, whether it be looking at images, whether it be just action in everyday life, but it might be that temptation continues, but you pray for deliverance from acting on those temptations. This is really, really important to understand. Remember, we talked about this last week, healing might not mean that temptation goes away completely, but God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives you power, real power, over saying yes to temptation. Listen, someone who is opposite sex attracted is still going to battle temptation for their entire life as well. So don't think of it like, well, that's not fair. I mean, that's, that's just, I mean, every single person in this room will battle some kind of sexual temptation throughout their entire life because we're broken and sinful people just at our core. Now, Again, for someone who has acted on their desires, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we don't treat this particular sin, if you've acted on it, any different than any other sin if someone else has acted on a different sin struggle. We, we take it to God, we confess it to him, and we believe that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Secondly, is to think about it biblically. First idea is that same-sex attraction does not define you. I think many people struggle with shame believing that, you know, God can't accept them based on their temptations. That's just simply not true. This is an opportunity to be, re to be reminded of the gospel and the free grace and mercy that's offered to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. And this applies to any believer, no matter what your temptations or struggles are. I think it's really easy to allow this struggle to dominate you or to make you believe that, well, this is just who you are. This is who you are. And I've said this before, our desires are not our identity. But here's the key. Don't let this struggle cause you to ignore 
the many other ways in which you battle with sin or temptation. I think about when I was in college, and I would go on these like long prayer walks at night, and I found myself confessing these like very specific sin struggles just all the time to God, just over and over again. And over time, I began to realize that I was ignoring my other sins, and like sins of pride and sins of anger and self-righteousness. And I was so hyper-focused on a few, a couple little sins that I felt like were just holding me back. And I found myself not confessing many other sins I struggled with because I was hyper-focused on a couple or a few. And so that might be where you, you sit today. If you have this particular struggle that we're talking about today, you might think of it as, well, this is my, this is this all-consuming struggle for you and you let it dominate everything. I think the key is it does not define you. And it's important for all of us to remember that it's important that we confess all of our sin and struggles to God in prayer and not just hyper-focus on a couple that we think tend to dominate who we are. Sam Albury also writes that he has met many men and women who have been through periods of same-sex attraction in their teen years only to discover that their desires eventually reverted to opposite-sex attraction. This is why it is so important for you to not act on things when you're tempted. Because our culture will say, well, if you have these desires, even a little bit, like you need to experiment and just see and see where it goes, and that's what our culture preaches to you. And what this man is saying is that in many of his conversations, people have said, yeah, I used to kind of have these desires, but... Over time, they just, they seemed to change as I grew in my faith and just grew in, as a person. And again, I will cover this more, but that may not be true for everyone, but that's true for some people. And it's why it's so important to not act on these things whenever you're tempted. And then thirdly, he says, seek the support of others. Now, by that, I don't mean people who affirm and celebrate it, but people who can come alongside you, and you've got to use wisdom and I would say you talk with someone that you trust, someone that's got a biblical view on this. And again, don't feel pressure to share this with everyone, your struggles, just like you wouldn't if, if you had a different kind of sin struggle. Um, I wouldn't recommend that somebody with a different sin struggle would go and just share it with everybody, right? You pick people you trust, people you can, can confide in. And, um, and I think it's important to have their emotional and spiritual support as you walk through whatever struggle it might be. And then, next question is, is it sinful to experience same-sex attraction? And again, I thought I would cover this a little bit again. We covered it some last week. I want to cover it, make sure you understand what I'm saying and not mishearing me. I said last week that same-sex actions are sinful, but same-sex desire is a result of sin. And by that, I don't mean like that you sinned personally, so God's like cursed you with this thing. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, I mean, we, we live in a broken world. And it leads everyone to different temptations and struggles. And so it's a consequence of the fall, just in general, that we're all going to struggle and battle differently. And this is how I think, I, I believe is the correct way for us to view that. It'd be wrong for us to say, this is how God designed me or God is tempting me. The book of James, James 1, 
says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So none of us can say about God, well, I have this temptation because God placed it within me and, and this is ordained by God and blessed by God. And I'm just going to live it out now because that's what, that's what I struggle with. I think James is clear. God does not tempt us, but our temptations are, really reflect our own fallenness and brokenness. This is not the same thing as saying that the presence of temptation itself is a sin to be repented of. I'll be really clear about that. It does not mean the temptation itself is a sin to be repented of because Christians have always distinguished between temptation and sin. Those are different. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, these are the words of Jesus, where Jesus says, and forgive us our debts, that means like sins we've committed, acts we've done, as we have also forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Another way to say this is that we, we seek forgiveness for sin, but we seek deliverance from temptation. Does that make sense to you? So we are never told to seek forgiveness for just being tempted or just a desire. We're never told to do that in Scripture. Sam Albury writes, to say the, the very experience of same-sex attraction is a sin seems to suggest that even having the capacity to be tempted is itself a sin, something that I do not believe Scripture says. Temptation and sin are not the same. Because Jesus was tempted, but he, Jesus never sinned, right? But we also know that he was, he was tempted um, as he came and came in the flesh as a human being. So I want to make sure you're clear on this, that if you've been living under this like cloud of shame just because of the temptation and the desires that you might have, that is not something you should be thinking to yourself like, like extra shame or extra guilt because um, of how it's viewed biblically. That's not something you should be looking at as like, heaping extra guilt and extra shame on yourself because of the temptation itself, if that makes sense to you. And again, if this stirs questions, please come ask. Please come talk to me. I want to make sure I'm being very, very clear as I say this part um, of our question this morning. The next question, if I experience, experience same-sex attraction, does that mean I can never marry? No, it does not mean that. Our culture wants to, you to believe that if you have any same-sex attraction, that's just who you are. Embrace it. Live it out. They see it as all or nothing, right? But that's not reality. I mentioned to you last week, there was a study done, University of Utah. This lady, her name is Lisa Diamond. She's actually, she's not a believer. And so her, her research is not biased towards what I believe or what you believe. But you would expect it to be biased the other direction because she's actually someone who is, I think, living out a same-sex lifestyle. But she did research on this. And she found that 14% of women say they experience some kind of same-sex attraction, but only 1% experience it exclusively. 7% of men say they experience it, but only 2% say it's exclusive. So most people 
experiencing same-sex attraction still have opposite sex attraction. But again, what does our culture say? If that's someone, if that's you, our culture says, well, guess what that means? Well, that means you're bisexual. So live out your bisexuality is what our culture says. Embrace it. Live it out. But do you realize if, if someone lives out, like, bisexuality, that means they could never be faithful to one person? Do you realize that? That means to, to truly live out that, that out, you'd have to marry, like, a man and a woman? I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just stating, stating honestly that if you were to truly live it out, that's what it would, re- would require of you and would require that you be in multiple relationships at the same time if you're truly going to live that out in the way that our culture says you should embrace it. And you'd have to spend your life going between two different worlds. And I don't think that that is what we can say that would honor God in a whole other way, obviously. And uh, now I will say this. Now, before you marry someone, you need to be attracted to them physically, okay? If you are not, then I don't think you should marry that person if you're not, if you're not drawn to them physically. Now, there are many same-sex attracted people that are happily married to someone of the opposite sex. I know that for a fact. I know people, all right? And they simply battle with temptation in the same way as someone who's opposite sex attracted. Now, I love what Sam Albury says about his own life. He is still a single man. He says, I don't need to be attracted to all women to marry a woman. It just needs to be one, right? And I love that statement because it it basically, he's saying, listen, some think that if you're same-sex attracted, that you have to somehow flip some switch and be attracted to everyone of the opposite sex for you to end up marrying someone. That's just not reality. Like God could, you could meet someone and God could bring this desire and attraction for that person and that's the, maybe even the one person your entire life you're attracted to this opposite sex and you can marry that person. And that's all that's required in order for this, to, uh, for this person, I think, to marry. Now, um, for Sam Albury, he says that, you know, God's not brought that person yet. But he's open. He's willing to say, hey, if God brings her, that's great. If God doesn't, he's choosing to be single until that were to happen. He's a great model for us. Um, I know, so you might ask the question, well, what about the person who's, who's only attracted to same sex, never experiencing opposite sex attraction? Should that person remain single? And I would say yes until they have attraction for that one person, is what I would say. Now, you might say, well, that's just not fair. How can you say that? And here's how I can say that. Because there are many people, again, I know some, who are opposite sex attracted that remain single throughout their life because for whatever reason, it just hasn't, nothing's led to marriage for them, for whatever reason. And if you remember our message on singleness, we shouldn't, we shouldn't hold up marriage as this idol, like to worship this thing called marriage, and we can't turn that into an idol. So if I'm going to tell a heterosexual person, if they're opposite sex attracted, that you should be single until someone comes into your life that you can marry, then I would surely say that to someone who is same-sex attracted. I think that's a biblical way to think about it. The next uh, question is this. I want to take a time out here and just remind you 
I meant to say this early in the talk, but I wanted to say this now. Listen, you might be sitting here thinking, why are we covering all this when this isn't my struggle? And here's why. We want you to love people well. The church has done a lot of damage with people. And, and we haven't loved well. And so this is why we're talking about this topic. And so um, if you're sitting there thinking, like, look, I'm over it. This is too much information. I mean, that's why we're having this conversation. The same is going to be true for next week as well, the next two weeks, really. But is that you need to learn how the gospel applies to anything and everything. Not just for your own life, but for other people's lives. You're going to have friends that you meet in college, even now, of course, that you need to learn to love well. That's why we're having these conversations. And so I hope that you can tune in. I know this is a lot to cover, but I hope you tune in and you can, you can think through this biblically. The next question, if I experience same-sex attraction, should I confess that before marrying someone? And I would say this, yes, absolutely. I'm not a fan of keeping secrets from your future spouse. Now, I'm not saying this should happen on the first date, okay? But as the relationship progresses and gets more serious, there should be a time when you confess your sins, your actions, but also your temptations to one another. And I would say it needs to happen before, before engagement. You might say, well, well, what if they reject me? Well, that might also happen if you confess uh, opposite sex sin as well, right? So here's why you confess it. You confess it because you believe the gospel. And you believe that God's grace and mercy is enough in your life. And you believe that God's grace and mercy is going to be enough that they can still see you in the same way that Christ sees you. And I guarantee you, if you confess to them, they will have some things to confess to you. And if they're not, if they don't, they're lying, okay? They will have things to confess to you as well. So you confess it because you believe the gospel. If you recall the verse from last week, after Paul mentions this big list of sins, then he says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 11, he says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. So my question for you is, do you believe that verse? Do you believe that verse is true of the person that you're about to marry? Is it true of you? If you believe this verse, you can confess to them. And you want to marry someone who believes it as well. And so I don't think you should hold things back or hide things from your future spouse. Now, someone asked a question uh, last few weeks, and I think it relates here. They asked, how do we tell someone that we're dating or engaged to about sexual sins done against us, like sexual abuse? How do we talk about that with someone that we're about to marry? Now, just to be clear, this is not your sin. 
this is someone who sinned against you. Many times the person that's a, a victim of abuse, they, they feel this, this guilt and shame even though they're a victim of someone else's sin. So what I would say to that person is I would say, well, listen, I still believe that you need to share those things. Maybe not all the details, but share, generally speaking, what has happened with you to a potential spouse. Again, I don't say not, not early in the relationship, but as things begin to progress towards engagement possibly, I think it's important to share those kinds of things. And I would, I would involve, maybe if, if you've gone through counseling or maybe even meet with a church, a, a pastor of some kind, and just say, hey, I need, I need to tell this person this really big thing in my life. How, how do I go about it? And have that person kind of walk you through ways in which you can say those things in a delicate but helpful way for your future spouse. Um, again, I think it should happen before engagement, but, but as things begin to progress in a serious relationship. The next question, what should I do if an unbelieving friend comes out to me? Well, first of all, I think that you, first thing, you thank them for being open and honest with you and for, for trusting you enough to share that with you. You start there. I think you listen, you ask questions, you empathize. You ask questions about how they're doing, how they're feeling. You ask lots of questions. Um, I would not get into theological discussions just yet with this person, but I would communicate how much you care for them, how much you love this person. I would start there. I don't believe that you should focus all that much on their specific viewpoints or sins, but focus more on their unbelief. Okay, so I would see this topic as kind of like a secondary issue. If they're not a Christian yet, then you talk a lot about, you talk a lot about Jesus and his desire to save us from all of our sin. Listen, the gospel isn't, you know, change and then come to Christ. The gospel is come to Jesus and let him change you. That's the gospel. And so you focus on that. Before we come to Jesus, our greatest sin is the sin of unbelief. And so you focus on that before you get into all the other things. It's important that we understand that. I think because then the person starts to think, well, okay, I've got to like pretty up my life and do this and this and this and stop doing this, this and this and then come to Christ. Well, that's not really the gospel, right? And so we don't want to teach a false gospel to someone. So I think you focus on their sin of unbelief first and just start there and let, let everything else take care of itself as they grow in their faith. Now, what should I do if a Christian friend comes out to me? How do I handle that? Well, just like the last question, you thank them for being open and honest with you and for trusting you enough to, to share this with you. I think you, again, you listen, you empathize, you ask genuine questions about how they're doing. And over time, you're going you're gonna to gain a sense of how they view this. Like, do they view it like in a biblical way? Do they view it as like, no, it's just this is totally fine. I'm going to live this out and embrace a lifestyle. And if they see it in a biblical way, then you walk alongside them, I think just as you would with a, with, a, with a friend of any other kind of temptation. If they're starting to experiment and go down that road and fall into sin, then I think you would approach it in the same way as any other Christian friend who is struggling with a certain sin. I don't think you need to change the game plan based on just the topic at hand, and you speak the truth in love, 
if someone is a Christian or claims to be a Christian, I think you need to treat it like anything else. If you've got a friend doing something else, like how would you do that? How would you approach that friend? Approach them the same way when it comes to this topic as well. Here's a resource for you. It's a website I came across, and it's called livingout.org. And this is a, a, a treasure trove of, like, stories and blog posts. And if you're someone who experiences same-sex attraction, you're going to hear in, in, encouraging stories from people, reminding you it's possible to be tempted but stay faithful throughout your life. Some powerful stories on this website. And if you're someone who wants to help others and love others well, there are resources for you as well. So you can go to that website and check it out. And it's mentioned in the back of Sam Albury's book uh, that I showed you on the screen a while ago. And then lastly, we have uh, just one cultural question we'll address today. And it's what about same-sex marriage? And I want to cover this quickly because I know sometimes this becomes the political debate, the, the conversation in families, in school hallways, in, in classes with friends. And I really believe that for a Christian to get caught up in these kind of political debates is kind of a, a sideline issue that we probably should try to avoid because it's going to just, it's gonna, for the person who's not a believer, they don't see it the way you see it. And it's a bit pointless to try to convince them of your viewpoint on this topic when they're not even on the same page with you when it comes to all spiritual things necessarily. And so I think this can be a, a, a um, distraction from the real issue at hand, but I'll answer the question as best I can. So a popular view among some Christians is to believe that you know, same-sex behavior is sinful, but then still support same-sex marriage because they you know, want to be loving and compassionate. I had students from previous years We'd have this conversation where they would say, no, I really believe the biblical view. I believe it's sinful to act on this, but how can I say to my unbelieving non-Christian friend who's same-sex attracted that they can't marry? How can I say that to that person if that's the right view to have? And I think, again, that's kind of a, distract, I think a, um, a distraction to get in the argument with that person. But as far as the viewpoint I think we should hold, um, I don't really understand the viewpoint that, you're going to, like, vote yes for same-sex marriage, but then hold this personal view that you think it's, it's sinful. I understand that desire. The desire is to be loving and compassionate. I get that. But I don't think it's a consistent view to hold, and here's why. Because if this topic was just a vote, then I'm going, to vote, I'm going to vote no on that because I don't believe this is what God would want. But that's not really how this topic works, is it? I mean, this, this topic gets decided in the court system, something I don't have much control over. So the real question is, how should I live in a world that disagrees with me? This applies, I think, to all kinds of things. I got these uh, three ideas from a blog a few years ago. And the first two are what not to do. The first option would be, make a sign saying America's going to hell and walk the city streets warning of impending doom for America's sins. I don't recommend that you do that, all right? You've seen people, you know people. They believe this is how we enact social change. Here's a bumper sticker. Put it on your car, right? And that's not really going to work. People don't really pull over and repent and turn to Christ when they see a bumper sticker of, like, turn or burn, right? They don't, they don't, that doesn't happen. So um, I don't recommend this option for our country. And then secondly, be paralyzed in fear because the changes in our society are too big for us. Leave it to God and do absolutely nothing. I don't recommend that option either. 
I think it's too hands-off, it's too passive. It's why I like the third option, which is remember that God is sovereign. He's called us to love others and preach the gospel to all nations. And we are supposed to trust him to bring people to repentance and faith in Jesus. I love that option. I think it's a much better option. We've got to choose option three. Listen, our society and our government will do all kinds of things that we disagree with. This is not the first time, and it won't be the last time. So I wouldn't spend time and energy getting into debates with unbelievers on this issue. I think it distracts from the more important issues like the gospel, personal belief, and repentance. And so um, next week, my wife will do a talk called The Gospel and Gender Identity. And she has worked really hard on this talk. And then uh, after that, um, the following week, she'll do like an onstage interview with someone along with some questions like I've asked today. And so make sure you're here next week and also the week after that. And, uh, and then we'll wrap the series up at that point. So I want you to see a short video. It's a testimonial from Sam, the guy I've been talking about a lot. I want you to kind of hear part of his story as you watch this video. I'm Sam Alberry. I live and work in Maidenhead, and I'm a church pastor. I'm a Christian because I know that Jesus died for me, that he rose again from the dead, that there's good reasons for, for believing those things. I'm a Christian because the message of Jesus makes far more sense of, of who we are as people and the way the world is than anything else I've ever come across. The church has been great with my whole issue of, of same-sex attraction. Certainly the church I'm a, I'm a member of uh, have been supportive, they've been an encouragement. People are, are wanting to, to be a good friend. And I've also appreciated that it's not defined how they see me, it's not the lens through which they view me. So they, they've been great. I've not had any experience of Christians getting angry or rejecting me because of it. Most people haven't really battered an eyelid. And I've just sort of thought, well, we've all got our own issues. This is one of yours. I hope experiencing same-sex attraction, having to kind of wrestle with it, I hope it's made me a more empathetic character than I would have been otherwise. It's not always been easy, but I think going through that has helped me, I hope to be a bit more patient with other people, to be a bit more understanding, I hope a bit more compassionate than I would have been. Being single actually has been a, a real blessing. It, it's given me opportunities to do things I wouldn't have probably got around to doing if I was married or had children. And it's given me a, a capacity for friendship that I don't think I would otherwise have. And it, it means a lot to me to be able to have a wide range of friends and to be able to, I hope, be a good friend to others. Having same-sex attraction isn't always easy. Obviously, I'm experiencing desires that I don't want to have. And that is, at times, can be very, very painful. Uh, it can be quite frustrating. Um, there are times when it, it's made some friendships a bit tricky. And there are times obviously when, when singleness isn't much fun either. All the, the sort of opportunities and advantages of it, there are times when it would be nice to have my own family. I'm convinced what, what the Bible says on this issue is good because I'm convinced God is good. I'm convinced God is good because actually Jesus has shown his goodness to me in his, his death and resurrection. I see the goodness of his, his words in, in so many areas of, of life. The one who, who made me 
and knows me better than I know myself is going to know what's good for me. The very best thing that God can do for anyone is to give them life in his son and the Christian life is all about Jesus and for as long as God is offering a relationship with Christ to anyone he is not anti them. Uh, there are things God calls all of us to, to turn away from, there are things in, in all of our lives that we need to uh, to rethink and to, to kind of give over to God but actually knowing Jesus is is what it is all about and that is the greatest gift God can give us and as long as that gift is being offered and it is God cannot truly be said to be anti anyone. One of the things Jesus says that, that most I guess encourages me in this whole area and I, I hope would encourage others in other areas too is that Jesus said on one occasion that, that anyone who leaves uh, fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and homes and other things for him and for the sake of the gospel even in this life will receive a hundredfold in return. So although we have to give things up to be Christian, although we have to turn away from certain things, leave certain things behind, actually we, we always, even in this life, receive far more back from Jesus than we ever give for him. And so although there'll be certain kinds of relationships I'm, I'm not going to enter into as a Christian, um, I've received back from Jesus a whole wonderful other set of relationships um, within the, you know, being part of a Christian community, being part of a church family. Um, and so it's, it's never a bad deal to follow Jesus. We pray for you. God, thank you for um, uh, your word. Thank you for uh, the way your word shapes us and molds us. And we pray, God, that... Um, that if, uh, again, if today has just uh, struck up more questions in our students, I pray they would come and talk to us and we can have those other discussions as well. God, we pray that um, every message here we try to make about the gospel, and I pray that the, the students have heard good news this morning, the good news of your gospel, the good news of your grace, and the good news of your mercy, and not just how it relates to just one topic, but how it relates to our entire lives. And I pray that's come through this morning and also the next couple of weeks. God, um, go with these students, and we pray that you would um, give them what they need for this coming week. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen.